Welcome to the Leaders in Construction podcast with me, Stuart Wallace. This is where we tell the stories of construction industry leaders from all across the world in hope of inspiring others to show them that anything is possible. This week, I'm speaking with Jason Flannery, an executive MEP sector lead for John Sisk. Let's get into it. Jason, thanks for joining us. Uh, great. Thanks very much for having me, uh, Stuart. No problem at all. Um, look, let's start by going right back to the start. So take me back from sort of even where you were brought up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, I mean, uh, I grew up in uh, in a Tipperary in, uh, in Ireland and um, lived uh, in a small little village called Bansha and... Um, had a lot of interest in sport growing up. Um, sort of had one brother, uh, lived with mum and dad. Um, and yeah, my dad was in the construction industry. He was a plasterer. So uh, there was always construction in the house, I guess. Um, yeah. And then there was always sport. I suppose it was a huge interest for the family and particularly for myself growing up. So I suppose early days were very enjoyable. Um, good memories, good times and... I think uh, when I was doing my sort of uh, intercert or junior cert, as it's called now in Ireland, my dad used to bring me on at, during the summer to work with him and stuff. So probably got my first taste of construction, uh, mixing concrete, <laughs> uh, mixing hardwall. How, and <laughs> how, how old were you then? How old were you? I was probably about 14, 15 at that stage. So it was, a few bob, it was a few bob for the summer and... Uh, Bit of hard work never killed anyone, as my dad used to say. So it was grand. Nice. Uh, did you um? What, what sports were you into? Locally, where I lived, um, it was all sort of GAA. So you you played football, you played hurling. Um, our local rugby club, Kilfiekel, was in, we were involved in that. We were involved in sort of all sports, if you like. Um, and uh, they were great, great, super enjoyable time, you know, uh, as a young kid playing sports. So uh, important to have those sort of interests, I think. 100%. And um, so how did your career begin then? Obviously, you mentioned that you were involved in construction from an early age, from the ages of 14. Um, yeah. And where did you, where did you I, really start sort of? I think, I think that experience was interesting because... Um, I I probably didn't have uh, an aptitude for for that side of the work, so sort of uh, the construction side of it. Um, I always tended to like technical side a little bit more, and I from a young age, I guess. Uh, look, I I applied for an apprenticeship with a company called MF Kent. At the time, they were probably one of the biggest uh, international companies at that stage. In fact, and um, so uh, applied to them. They had a base in Clonmel in County Tipperary, and but they worked worldwide. And I applied to them back in uh, nineteen eighty nine or thereabouts. And yeah, I was accepted onto an apprenticeship. I suppose the part that I didn't expect was uh, they said to me, "Look, it's great. It's great to have you. Uh, you're part of the company now." At the time, I think they took on one hundred and fifty apprentices. But I suppose what I didn't expect was they said to me uh, on a Friday, well done, you've got the job. On a, But on Monday, you're on the first flight out of Shannon Airport to Heathrow Airport. And you will be heading down to our office in Sunbury on Thames. And I went, 
right <laughs> and <laughs> and i went wow that's that's quick uh, i suppose i had uh, thought maybe you know i'd be on some job in ireland or whatever the case may be but no look they're an international company they had recruited heavily so they were going to spread their massive apprentice intake everywhere from south africa to the uk to ireland and i was in the the uk i was uk bound that monday in fact uh, as a young man uh, very interesting, landed in Heathrow and of course, uh, young, green as grass, uh, didn't really know what to expect, but I have to say they were very good. They integrated us into the office there very quickly where they gave you your first taste of, I guess, the basics, you know, sort of, uh, getting to look and try and understand drawings uh, for different projects, different systems, different services, which of course, you know, I didn't really understand if I'm being honest, um, but I had good mentors at that time and they would take you through things and you started life really trying to sort of understand services and take off drawings and quantify systems and just a very, I suppose, an easy in, I guess, to to what is potentially a very complex industry. So, yeah, it was good, very good. And did you? Um, how did you then start to sort of climb up the ladder? Like, what was what was your motivations? I think, in truth, I've always wanted. It's 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 an interesting one because. First of all, after training as an electrician, I felt right. I have an appreciate of the appreciation of the electrical side. Uh, I always had a sort of a drive to understand the mechanical side uh, as well, and and then you know, so I studied building services engineering after that. Um, but then when I got to that point, my next step or my next thought process was. Okay, so I have a good technical appreciation of the mechanical and electrical side of, of the business, but you know, I'd like to manage a project. I'd like to be somewhat responsible for a project. So it wasn't long to be fair to MF Kent before they sort of pushed us into uh, a junior sort of supervisory role, like a foreman over a small area on a job, that sort of thing. And I really took to that. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it just created a more hunger, if nothing else. Was that, did you think you got into them, um, obviously for the listeners, to, for, for how you got from just, you know, coming in as an apprentice to ending up as a foreman and looking after a specific area or package? Do you think, was that due to just the willingness and the, was it was it quite obvious to them that they could see that you were ambitious? Yeah, I'd have to give them a lot of credit for the fact that um, uh, there was two or two hundred apprentices approximately on that intake in nineteen eighty nine. When uh, we came out of our time, it was uh, four years later, obviously. But then they identified five of us out of the two hundred, and they actually sponsored us to to go back to college uh, and study further. So I suppose, to be fair to them, they had identified uh, a core out of that group that they felt, you know, and it's like every company, they're identifying uh, the need for tomorrow, not exactly what's happening right now. And I think, and I know those five guys now are in the industry and all doing quite well in the end, or those four, sorry, uh, are doing quite well in the industry. So they they were good. They identified, I think, Stuart, um, people they felt might have, that drive or ambition or ability to, to push on a little bit. So I think, to be fair, it was them. Yeah, I had the ambition and the drive, but 
also I think their uh, ability to identify um, maybe the future generation or whatever way you'd like to put it. But uh, I think they were very good at that as well, you know. And how important do you think an apprenticeship is? How important do you think they are? I know they've seen they've not seen a rise really in, in apprentice, uh, apprenticeships across the you know the UK and Ireland and across Europe. So I'd be keen to kind of hear your points on that. Very interesting question. Um, I suppose uh, having done an apprenticeship, I was anxious to get the academic side. I think for those that are academic and graduate uh, uh, as a first step, um, it's different. I, I think the it's. I think the apprenticeship is extremely important because it really does give you that grounding. It does give you basic, strong sight knowledge uh, and awareness, particularly I was lucky. I, the first project I went to was a, an oil refinery in Southampton called Esso Foley. And it was, a, again, as a young man, I'd spent maybe a few months in the office. I was shifted down to that site. And I mean, this was an eye opener. It's five miles square. It's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a very impressive Exo facility, Exxon facility that uh, we were working on. And, you know, it heightened your awareness of safety. It heightened your awareness of culturally working in teams and trying to get work done against deadlines. It was, it was an introduction to that side of the business, I guess. And, yeah, so the apprenticeship for me is extremely important. Um, I'm still delighted that, <clears throat> excuse me, Kent's gave me the opportunity to go on and follow the academic side as well. But I do think we need far more apprentices in the industry. And I do really appreciate lately speaking to some of the colleges and universities and educators that there's a real drive to turn the apprenticeship into an academic. It's sort of a, a sort of a blended route sort of where you yeah. can do your apprenticeship and through the blending of it that they can outturn engineers at the back end so I, I think they're getting it right i don't know if we're attracting enough people into the industry unfortunately as i suppose we'll we'll talk about later because we we can see it in the industry now but we're challenged a little bit but yeah for sure i mean you can't go wrong with a, a good solid technical apprenticeship and sort of looking for your career, obviously, that's where you started. And then, yeah. you know, I've got your profile in front of me. It's really impressive when you talk about some of the companies you've worked for, some of the largest in Ireland to, to where you are now, regional managers, commercial and operations director, MEP sector lead. Did you did you always want to be in this high-level position or did you ever want to be somewhere else? Um, it took a while. I mean, you I cut my teeth, as I say, uh, with Kent's, and I suppose the other opportunity they gave you was to work on many different uh, sectors, which I think is very important as well. Um, I managed to get to work on petrochemical, uh, sort of educational facilities, uh, processing and semiconductor plants, things like that. But yeah, I think I always wanted to experience that climb and 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 take responsibility and i think when you're young unfortunately you you want to move faster but you can't because you have to learn every step of the way is a journey every project is a learning experience whether it's a different sector whether it's with new people whether it's different project demands there's so much to it um so it did take a little bit i guess 
um, in moving from Kent uh, to a, another company uh, after that, an English company called Quinns, um, I experienced the rail side of things and uh, infrastructural side of things. And that was a really good experience as well because they were the ones that really said, look, you know, we want to turn you into a project manager. We want to see if you can manage a project or multiple projects. You know, can you build teams? Can you uh, enable those teams to perform? So that really was the next step. And I suppose I was delighted to take that step, Stuart. You know, uh, I, I took it with uh, open arms, really. And again, they were good enough to 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 create that platform for me to do it. So I felt it was a, a good move and I spent quite some time with them. On, on, in that sector so again good experience but yeah I really did want to progress and I think that desire to progress um, sort of you you get this uh, period with companies five six seven years you learn as much as you feel you can learn in that maybe industry or from them and and then you tend to maybe look and say well what's the next step how do I take that next step and that's pretty much probably what comes into most young people's minds when they're trying to make the step I suppose it's patience as well, though, because you have to realize a couple of things, your value to the company and, and of course, what the company then can do for you. So it's 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 a little bit of a two way street, to be fair. And uh, yeah. I've been lucky in my career. I've worked with some amazing companies uh, who've given me that opportunity, thankfully. And um, just obviously looking over the span of your career, though, what what, what made you kind of want to get into that role was that something you always wanted to get into though or is it um and did you actually ever want to be something else no no um i'm 33 plus years in in the building services industry now um and as i progressed through i always wanted to hit a senior level in the industry i it was always an ambition and always a desire and you know, I did that in every way I could, working for the the, the, the the largest providers, working on the biggest and major projects across every sector, further educating myself at every step. I mean, uh, I ended up with Jones Engineering. They sponsored me to do a postgrad at the time, and I did that, which I felt was excellent. Um, so I tried to marry up the two, which wasn't very easy because, of course, I have a large family, a wife and a, a very good wife and a large family. And. I suppose they were very good as well because all the time I could be working away, I would be balancing uh, family interests with studying uh, part-time, uh, working on complex projects and perhaps, you know, not getting home as much as you'd like. So it's a tough industry, um, but I think the key was to try and balance as much the educational side and the experiential side and bring that through to get to where you sort of want to go. And yeah, I've always wanted to take a step each time. Um, and thankfully I think I've been able to do that. So yeah, again, it's, it's opportunities are offered, but of course you've got to take them. And I think, um, I think, look, I, I think I've taken them with uh, the majority of the companies I've worked for. They've been good enough to offer them. So, yeah, it's been it's been great. It's been a great route. I, th I think it's, actually, it's, it's good points that you make about just constantly wanting to progress. But they say that happiness is actually found in progression anyway. You know, it's just when you're constantly progressing. Um, so, yeah, I completely get that. Um, what would you say is, you know, whether it's it doesn't have to be sort of mainly financial, it can be anything. But what's been your favourite job so far over the course of your career? 
probably most yeah, enjoyable. It's a very interesting question because um, we go through our career and and there's a, a big onus on technical capability and managerial capability. And then there's a huge focus on time for a project, the schedule, the quality, the cost, um, the safety levels. And now what's become really prevalent is the people side of the industry. Um, so, so there's a lot of different facets to the industry. I think in terms of the project, what project did I enjoy? If, if, if I step right back as a young man, I was offered an opportunity in Lowestoft in Suffolk um, to do the to head up the mechanical, electrical, and refrigeration packages for a food processing plant, which was an Anglo-Irish uh, beef processing uh, food plant. And I have to say, I really enjoyed it, but I was under enormous pressure. And I don't think the pressure was external influences. It was probably my fear of failure, I guess. Uh, but I incredibly enjoyed the job because I was ultimately responsible for absolutely everything that was mechanical, electrical, refrigeration, and all of those other facets of the project that came with it, which I wouldn't have been incredibly experienced at at the time. Um, but I think the enjoyment was not just delivering the project successfully and watching the client move in and the processing plant uh, function. I think the enjoyment was, I knew at the end of that job, this was extremely difficult for me, but I have learned more in this last 12 months than I could ever have imagined. So that's what made it enjoyable. And I think it was challengingly enjoyable, if that, that even makes sense. But yeah, I knew, I knew I was challenged in every way, you know, whether it was technically, whether it was design-wise. I mean, I ultimately sized all of the electrical cables and systems for that project. We had specialists for the refrigeration. I hadn't been involved in high stage and low stage compression of ammonia before. Um, the mechanical side, I was involved in partially design review and constructability. And then I had responsibility to return the project with, uh, you know, with a profit. Everyone's in the business to try and make a few quid. They're not, they're, they don't want to do these jobs because they love them. That's part of it. But so there was the financial element of the project. And then, of course, the schedule was demanding because the client wanted to get in. They wanted to produce. Um, the construction was a necessary evil to get them to that point where they could actually get their business up and running. Um, so, you know, and the people, I mean, I met people from all over England and brought them into the job from all over Ireland and brought them into the job. So it was brilliant working with different people, with different uh, methodologies, uh, subcontractors, major subcontractors from all over. Um, so, you know, I got an appreciation of how to, to, to sort of really try and make things work, I guess. Um, and that was enjoyable, Stuart. It was challenging, I must say, but very enjoyable. Did you feel like it was enjoyable at the time or was it post the actual project when you look back? Because sometimes maybe yeah. people are in a sim similar position right now, right, where they're on a project and it's extremely challenging. Oh, wherever you might be. And I think yeah. that at the time it's always hard to understand whether it's enjoyable or whether it's just breaking you. And how did you get through that, I suppose? Yeah, that's very true. You make a great point. Um I probably didn't realize at the time I was enjoying it as much as I potentially was. It was definitely post-project. And, and I think in our industry, when you're in the midst of it or in the middle of a project, 
it's it's the project is sort of consuming it, it consumes you a little bit you don't really get to you don't really get to experience the the enjoyment side of it it's 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 cut and trust it's go 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 it's get it done um obviously safely and properly but but in that cut and trust time really your focus is is entirely on on achieving a result or achieving a step-by-step process to get to that result. So, yeah, it it was afterwards, I think, when I got to breathe again. um, Christ, that was good, you know. And there's always that lull. The project lifestyle cycle is very interesting. There's there's that build-up, then there's that midpoint, and then there's that closeout, you know, and that's not taken into account pre-construction and commissioning. If we just look at the project lifecycle and construction stage itself, you get that point then where you're nearing completion and that is ultimate pressure. Um, the buildup is good and that's all about the planning. And if you get the planning right and good and proper and detailed, your procurement correct, your subcontractor awards correct, you give yourself a fighting chance. And in the mid-flight of the job, it's all about sort of analyzing effective production and of, of, and in construction. Are we constructing correctly? Are we constructing in the right sequence? Have we got, is there enough people on the job? Are the subcontractors performing? You fall into all those categories. But then when it comes to the closeout, that's hyper pressure because the the, the detail level of planning to close it out properly uh, is extremely important. Um, and the client becomes demanding at that period because they, they they sort of see the end line as well and they really want to, to, to this job closed out. So yeah, I think... I think it's interesting, but I think it's post-project you sometimes sit back and think, wow, yeah, that was good. And what would you, or, kind of skipping ahead here, but it kind of flows really, what would you say is the sort of the key strength that you really need to get through a process like a, like a you know, a construction project, the full life cycle? Yeah, yeah, you need to be very resilient. I mean, there are days when it's not going to go correctly. There are days maybe weeks where you feel um how do i turn this how do i change this you know what are the key factors that i need to consider to make this project good but um you need to be resilient you do need to have patience as well because there are always external factors influencing those around you um whether it's people issues whether it's you know uh, political or environmental issues i mean we look today at the amount of challenges we have in the industry and a lot of those are external to what people and companies can achieve and it's understanding those without letting them overtake you um so resilience is huge patience is 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 is, is also very important but solid focus as well you can't take away your focus at certain points in the job because to lose focus, you potentially could lose the job to some degree, or it's a bit like a sports analogy. You could lose, you could lose the dressing room. And it's, it's important to, to, to maintain that focus and, and be absolutely resilient because you got to take the good with the bad. Um, And it's just in our industry, it's not always, there's not always great days, but, but you know what, at the end of a project, it's always a fantastic time when the achievement by everyone involved comes to fruition you know it's just that's the good time and um 
And do you think there's a lot of outside influences on that as well? So obviously you've got your, you know, you've got your internal from the work perspective, and you've got the guy, you know, your, your full team on the ground that that ultimately will yeah. be striving towards the same goal. But what about your external things? Like you know, you talked about a wife and kids, and you know, yeah. there's a lot of people out there that are not talking about things that have that are currently on a project, and it might be stressful, which most likely it is because they are, like you, like you mentioned. Um, and then they also have. Ex- Do you think you ha- kind of need to get that sorted as well before you can really have your head focused on something? I think you know there's so many external influences that probably we don't talk about. I think it's very important in construction today to realise. I guess it's a very. Uh, we live in an industry that's very testosterone-driven. Very, um, it's very sometimes egotistically driven uh, you know and 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 you know you've got to appreciate people have um you know they've got families they've got lives uh, you could have an extremely demanding client you know you've had we've had brexit we've had the war we've had the covid pandemic we've had material shortages and difficulty in terms of delivery times and of course we have a shortage of quality resources in the industry so there are so many complex uh, external influences on a project that people sometimes uh, don't realize. And, and you know, how do you deal with those, I guess? But and, and that's not easy. But I think planning comes back into it again. We have to plan better. We have to plan earlier. Communication with the client is key because things don't, if things aren't going correctly, don't hide, um, you know, We've, we've, you've got to make sure there's proper engagement and proper planning at every part of it. And if there are people who do have issues, you've got to plan around that and bring in other people, supplement resources. You know, you've got to try and program and schedule the project to coincide with these late deliveries, or we won't call them late deliveries, but what become more par for the course now is, you know, you cannot get uh, equipment as quickly as we used to. Um, and, you know, if you consider those things properly, you have a good chance of maintaining a decent balance on the job. But you're right, there's there's a lot of influences there, Stuart, that maybe they're not discussed enough. And, you know, maybe they're not planned for enough and maybe they're not catered for enough. But uh, our industry is definitely developing. We're definitely getting better at that. And I think... One thing I've noticed about uh, CISC is that I think we're extremely good at that. Um, I believe CISC are at the forefront of that in terms of, you know, they're sort of working week for guys. They appreciate uh, the rotations that are needed. Um, they do try to have, uh, you know, adequate management and technical resources to somewhat relieve the pressure by working in good, solid teams that are reliable. They have a lot of these things uh, considered. But I think, look, in the industry as a whole, I think we probably have a little bit to go. To bit to go. Yeah, that makes sense. And what would you kind of say from, from looking at all these things from, from your past and where you are today, what would you say your biggest your biggest failure has been and how have you kind of come back from that or how did you tackle it? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because... Um, the, the, you have some you have some huge fears in this industry my biggest fear always was and thankfully it never happened but really a serious injury on a job is something that you just don't want it, it's an absolute no um so and thankfully that has never uh, become an issue for me touch wood thank god but um i think failure wise i suppose 
I've I, I cast my mind back to a job. It's actually a data center job, um, and I feel that the pressure was enormous, and the timelines were reasonably challenging. Well, I say reasonably challenging, extremely challenging, and. I work very, very hard to, with the client to try and get the client to understand the demands. Um, but I didn't, I didn't get that message across as I would have liked to. And I didn't manage to get an extended period of time that I felt was needed for the project. So what did we do? Um, we had to lay on double and treble shifts. We had to work all night, all weekends. Um, and I and I felt, I I felt personally that it mightn't have been the right thing to do. Of course, the client was delighted. The client is happy, but you know, I do look back at times, and I think we have to be very honest sometimes with our clients. And it's very hard because we're in a commercial industry. You know, you want to make money, you want the client to be happy. But, and the client doesn't ever really want to hear that, look, we can't finish your job in September. It's going to be uh, three months late. They, they don't really want to hear that uh, or the reasons why. And I think in some industries, particularly maybe blue chip client industries, they're willing to pay for that problem to go away. But money doesn't always solve the problem. That's the funny thing. Um, it, it solves a lot of problems and it's great in, in, in the company's account. But I think the whole idea of of trying your best to bring the client on the journey with you, whether it's good or bad or both, I think that's very important. And perhaps I think at that particular stage and that particular job, I didn't manage to get the client to come on that journey with me, um, which I look is back that like, on. Is, is that like just you, your communication skills to the client? Is that the relationship that you have with the client that enables you to do that? Or is it is is it a different factor? I think it's a different factor. I think I had a good relationship with the client and I think my ability to communicate was quite good. Um, but I think ultimately it was driven again, of course it's an external factor and it's understanding your client's needs, but the client on this particular project had uh, sort of sublet the data hall floors to uh, an incoming tenant. And that incoming tenant was uh, one of, you know, the top, companies in the world and i guess the deal that the client had done with that incoming tenant was probably a very lucrative deal but it was time bound and because it was time bound as they said to me jason we probably agree with what you're saying and we can understand why you're saying it but in reality we don't have any choice here um you we've made agreements uh, with our end user and we have got to keep those agreements because the, the the penalty factor is far too great for us so we've got to find ways around this problem that may not necessarily be exactly in line with the way you probably want to do it so i think Stuart, it was an external factor it was probably a, it was probably a money issue <clears throat> in at the end of the day that probably forced us uh, to accelerate i guess on the project um and while acceleration is fine it brings with it its own challenges in, in terms of safety quality you know people um those are the factors then that, that that multiply when you're in that situation and you now have to not only build that job faster you have to be very conscious of, of what's happening in that specific period particularly safety is the particular one because you know yourself when you're energizing systems and services on a major project that is yeah. an 
absolutely critical time on that project for for all of the processes, procedures, limitations of access, care of hazardous energies. You know, they that has to become the most important thing on the job almost because you've got to protect people as a first. Yeah, well, I know from obviously doing the health and safety market for over five and a half years, um, having the correct safety people on a project is absolutely paramount. You know, mm. they can um, ultimately it's everybody's job, as they say, for, for health and safety. Right. But um, I think having the right individuals on a project um, that can set things up from the beginning and also get on the ground and actually speak to the lads is absolutely paramount as well. So, you know, I completely agree with you. Um, talk me through sort of then from because look I've, I've looked through your profile and we've been speaking about it for the last 30 minutes and I think um, it's really strong it's quite clear that you've been through you've weathered a few storms right when it comes to different industries from rail to commercial to pharmaceutical to data centers now what would you obviously in your kind of your morning routine right how do you I'm always quite interested in what successful people do and how do they sort of what what you know what what what's what's their day-to-day routines how does yeah. the morning look like typical it's, typically it's typical morning is interesting I, I get up quite early right i'm 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 a nearly riser um what i like to do if i can is i like to spend 30 to 40 minutes uh working out whether it's going for a jog whether it's whatever whatever it takes just 30 40 minutes into the shower, into the car, um, you know, always try to be aware of everything that's moving from sort of an early point on, half seven on, you know, texts, emails, you know, teams, whatever is happening on our projects. Um, uh, we've got a great risk information gathering system in CISC, which, give, which, which we collect every month from every single project. It highlights a, in a traffic light system if there's any issues on that job. Helps you to narrow the focus then onto what job needs your attention at that time. But so typically, you know, you're, you're online from about half seven. You're, you're in the office or on the site or wherever you need to be quite early, you know, before eight o'clock. You then sort of, you tend to plan days ahead. So you, you, you're not coming in on a Tuesday looking at what you need to do on a Tuesday. You're probably coming in on a Tuesday knowing what you need to do for at least till next Tuesday or the week after, funnily enough. Now that changes, you know, it's fluid to some degree. But I always try to step back a little bit uh, and, and focus, keep an overview on our resources, our projects, our risks, um, and then it allows me to narrow my focus into a particular project, R2, R3. I tend to get to our projects. Um, you know, I've been last week and the week before between the two. I've probably been on five or six different projects, meeting the people, going through how they function, how they work. You know, what kind of structure we have on site? Is it effective? Is the client happy? You know, is uh, is everybody happy? Is the project working? So I tend not to have too much time to think because I'm jumping from potentially project to project or person to person. And I tend to uh, try and keep a two week look ahead focus on what, uh, what we're trying to achieve in the business. Now, again, we're very, we're very good in CISC. Um, uh, the manage, our managing director, Tom Wall, he call, we have a monthly meeting where we get together and we review every project. We give bus, business updates from every single sector, whether that's quality, health and safety, M&E, csa whatever side it is 
And I find those invaluable because you learn so much by by sitting in the room as a senior team. So you have all the re- regional directors, myself, the managing director. Is that done online? And, is it no, online or is it no, actually face-to-face? Face-to-face now. We do it Perfect. face-to-face. Um, I guess there was a period when it was online, but we've tried, and I agree with this, is to bring people back together again. I, I, I think I agree. online has its place and technology is fantastic. But I sometimes think there's no greater benefit than sitting with your colleagues face to face and having good, open, frank discussions about various areas and potential areas where we feel need to be supported, supplemented, where we feel there's risk. I get a great I personally get a huge benefit out of being with the guys or being in a room or meeting the guys or even meeting the guys on site. Um, There's only so much you can do online, I think. And maybe online has dominated us a little bit post pandemic because it is easier. You can't get to people who are, you know, countries away, continents away. But but still, there's no substitute, I think, for getting everyone back together no. again, you know. And and I think that what you just – I've seen a video actually online. I think it was actually on a Stephen Bartlett podcast, right, of the Diary of a CEO. It was a bit of a snippet. And um, I can't remember who, who said it, but they were talking about an actual debate, right? And most yeah. debates and ideas come from being in a room and – me speaking and you just over shouting a little bit and someone saying something else and it's quite creative <laughs> right you yeah. can't do that on a video call it just doesn't work because yeah. you don't hear what other people are saying so no um no. yeah no look i um i completely agree um so obviously you were talking one thing that i picked out was um obviously you said you, you you get up in the what time do you get up in the morning usually generally six o'clock generally six, o'clock. six. yeah six and, o'clock and generally and and obviously you like to exercise. And then you mentioned that yeah. you like to do two week look aheads, right? So for yeah. anybody that's in a really sort of hectic project right now, and they're trying to do two week look aheads for their own, you know, for their own personal journey, where do you fit that time in? When do you plan for your own, you know, for your own sort of. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, what I try to do is, um, so I try to do it, believe it or not, on a Sunday afternoon. Um, I sit down on a Sunday afternoon and I look across the week, uh, two weeks, and I look across the projects. And it's probably harder for guys who are on projects because they're project focused. I suppose I'm business focused. Um, I think when you're project focused, you're entrenched in, entrenched in what's going on right now, right here. And yeah, they'll do two week look heads. And actually on some jobs, we do six week look heads, believe it or not. Um, sort of uh, mini schedule reviews but but they're project focus so that means that their entire focus is is just around their project and like i deal with lots of guys who are project focused and they'll always say to me you know i need this i need support on this i need more of that i need the other well i'm business focused so i'm consistently looking across the life sciences and technology business of cisc on our projects and looking to prioritize what's needed more each person on their project believes their project is the most important project in the world. And I don't blame them. When I was on a project, my project was the most important project in the world. But from a business business perspective, I have to have the ability to step back a little bit and analyze the real needs across the project. So I have to be able to say, when I'm looking over the next two weeks, via whether it's data management collection, the rigs, as I mentioned, whether it's senior team meetings, whether it's direct communication with my my fellow colleagues, the regional directors, um, it's identifying what's really needed because uh, the business probably takes priority over the project. Um, but if but 
when, if we analyze it correctly and we address the needs of the project with the most needs at that time, and then move on to the second on the priority list, you actually are maintaining a balance on the projects, albeit the project people may not entirely always see it like that because, of course, you want immediate answers when you're on a project. So that's kind of how I do it, Stuart. On a Sunday afternoon, I think I sit down and I draft up, is there any changes to my plan for the next two weeks? You know, can I fly to Holland uh, next Thursday? Can I be in Pfizer in Grange Castle? Can I get to Intel in Kildare? Can I get down to Vision Care in Limerick? You know, can I get to RCMF in Cork? I need to get out to Pfizer and Zagreb. Whatever it is, I mean, it's it's trying to make that plan work and reviewing it. And and then if something comes up in the meantime that creates a higher risk, then, of course, your plan changes because you've realized my priorities have changed from a business perspective and that project needs to be supported. It might be that it needs, uh, you know, an additional, uh, for example, turnover engineer an additional mechanical engineer it might be that the client has said look i i want to i want to slow this project down believe it or not not speed it up because we're considering a massive change to the to the contract and we're thinking of building uh, an additional area in the facility it can, it can be a multitude of different things that has to be that ha you know you have to consider which may change your plan but i think look you have to have a plan in every aspect, uh, I guess, of life, but particularly in our industry, you have to have a plan. And if the plan changes, fine, but at least you have a plan, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I well, that's what I was going to say. Obviously, um, even from, I obviously work in the industry from a recruitment standpoint, but even with my own, um, you know, with my own individual career, I can see the best times that I've, you know, I've been probably at the top of my game is when I've been planned. And a Sunday has mm -hmm. always been the best day to plan for me for the week because there's no noise. And I don't yeah. know, maybe that, that obviously it helps when there's not, you, you know, your mobile phone's not really pinging out and there's no emails flying through. Sometimes I've, I've even told the guys that that's probably the best time to plan because it's quiet. You can actually think you can probably plan something that might take you three hours during a normal workday because you just yeah. can't think about it. Um, do you also think that the planning reduces the anxiety of the project, too? Because you've got to be you've got to be fluid, right? You have to be fluid. Like yeah. you said, anything could come in. Yeah. But if you have a plan, anytime that I personally have a plan, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm going in. I'm just executing it, right? If you if you have to think about it as well as doing it, I think sometimes the two don't go together. No, 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 no. I think I think um, there's two words, and I suppose they become sort of buzzwords uh, to a degree over the years, but they are actually the most important thing. When in a project, you know, planning is essential. And communication is essential. The better the communication on the project and the better the planning, the more cohesive the team, um, because everybody is trying to work in the same direction and everybody is open-minded in communication. So, for example, people make mistakes. It's not the end of the world. It's how quickly you can find out what that error is and how you can recover that error is key. It's not sweeping it under the carpet or making someone afraid to tell you they made a mistake. And then planning is essential because it gives everyone a view. And it, it, it's, it's, I, I mentioned earlier about bringing people on a journey. I think the, 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 the key is if you have a schedule that's realistic and everybody can buy into it, well, okay, it may take changes along the way, but you're st we're still bought into the project. We're still bought in at the same level and we're still bought in with a reasonably similar plan. And I think that's key uh, 
no project can probably be built without a very clear roadmap. Um, you know, you can call it Primavera, we can call it whatever we want, but whatever that system is that you're going to use to develop that schedule, that's that's key. That's key. And and I think regular review of it and identification of risks or potential risks in the future. They also give you a chance to reduce the anxiety because you know what? Maybe that early planning has given you an opportunity to come up with a solution for something that hasn't even happened yet. And I think it does reduce anxiety because, again, construction is it can be anxiety-related because it's pressure. Um, nobody goes into a construction project, whether you're a, a manager, whether you're a, an executive director, whether you're a subcontractor, whether you're a tradesman. Nobody goes into the job uh, with the view that, you know, we'll take it easy. It, it doesn't happen. Everybody goes into the project with a view. We've got to get it finished and we've got to get out. Everybody from top to the bottom, bottom back up again. Um, so so that's where the schedule, it's so important, Stuart. It's so important. And what would you say is sort of the biggest challenge that the construction industry, even maybe yourself and Cisco are dealing with right now, whether that's to do with hiring, whether it's to do with anything material shortage, or what, what would it, what's the biggest challenge for you guys right now? Yeah, there's a few key areas. And and again, I suppose with the benefit of having worked for some of the largest uh, engineering and construction organizations in the business, I think CISC um, have probably got to a point where they're one of the best in the business at it. But the challenges we face at the moment are, for example, there's the people challenge, um, which is one of our strategic pillars as well. So our focus on people, development and training of our people, retention of staff, um, uh, you know, data collection and analytics around what what makes a successful project. But I think the people thing is a huge challenge at the moment. Uh, and I found it myself personally. I'm This is my 14th month with CISC now. And I found the, the, the people side of things, it's finding the right people, getting them into the right team, um, that feeling of satisfaction, involvement, and 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 offering them adequate development and mentoring uh, in the process, I think is key. And it's something we've identified as being uh, a very critical and crucial issue. And because we've identified it and work with it, our retention levels are very good, right? Um, they're not perfect, uh, but they're good. They're very good. And I believe that's borne out of the fact that we have identified the people side of the business. Uh, as I say, traditionally, the KPIs were time, quality, and cost. And if people were honest, they'd probably say cost outweighed everything in back in the day. You know, it's all about money. It's all about making money. It's all about turning uh, the job over and pulling the money out of it. Still important. But I think we've evolved to the point now where we realize that, you know what, you can't do that without the people. Uh, you can't do it without the quality. You can't do it unless it's safe. So we've, the industry has moved, but, but in particular, I think um, companies like Cisco have moved in an enormous way in, in sort of recognizing their people and that their people are probably the biggest part of the project. Now, it's, it's the right people delivering the right project, quite happy and, sa and satisfactorily, safely, will, will always breed success for a project. And how are you finding actually, you know, finding these people out there, um, you know, the right individuals? What does the right, you know, what does the right individual look like to, to come and work for, for, for CISC? 
Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. We we've we've got a, a number of channels we pursue. Uh, not least, I suppose, my own contacts in the industry, my own network alone. But you know, again, companies like yourselves, Stuart, who would source people for us as well. But I think it's it's the right person, uh, and I guess we work. Our particular industry is life sciences and technology, which, of course, is pharmaceutical, right? And and it's semiconductor. And it's very process-driven. So I suppose it's finding, number one, the right talent with that right experience in pharmaceutical. Um, and I think it's important that they've worked in that industry because it is a little bit different. Um, it's a little bit process-driven. It's a little bit system-driven. Um, and whereas your standard building services job isn't quite as as procedural, isn't quite a system driven, right? So the, it is a different kind of a guy. It's a guy who works very well with the whole planning aspect, the pre-planning, the forward thinking, forward looking, um, and understanding the process necessary to ensure that the project is delivered in accordance with the client's expectations. It's those people. And it's funny. They generally come from a mechanical background. Um, they generally come from a pharmaceutical background, and they are generally very ordered, organized uh, people that fit into the to the to the life sciences side of the business. Um, so yeah, it's challenging, but I think we do know what we're looking for, um, and we've had a reasonable success rate in in building our team over the last twelve months. Um, because our clients haven't grown, but they have their workload has grown. So we get repeat business from the same clients because we deliver a quality product. And we tend to try and keep the same people. So that's the retention of staff piece, the repeat business element. And then I suppose it's growing around that core and, and bringing people in because it's very difficult to bring somebody in and expect that they're just going to fit in at the click of a finger it's not going to happen they need to come in and be part of the team and grow within the team before they can take that next step as well it's a little bit like i said earlier you got to be patient but that patience will pay off because if you learn from the guys around you then effectively you will eventually become that mep lead or that package manager or that mech lead or, a, or e and i lead that you want to be so yeah, so that's 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 the that's the key piece at the moment, uh, Stuart. And obviously, from the um, from obviously your um, your hiring plans and the type of the quality individuals that you've been hiring, obviously over the past twelve months and the repeat business from clients, what does the next five years look like for you and Sisk? Would you say very interesting because. Um, we are at the moment in a very, not so much this, but the industry is is heated at the moment. Um, there's a lot of work, particularly in the life sciences sector. Just, all of our clients, um, and they're exceptionally good clients, they're all expanding. Every existing plant is expanding. We've heard about the announcement recently on Pfizer and Grange Castle going into a major expansion. Uh, we've heard about... You know, these type of clients, um, the Janssens and the Johnson and Johnsons and the BMSs are expanding in Europe. Uh, some of the existing plants we work on, like analog devices and vision care, they're in expansion plans at the moment on site. So it's very, very busy. We we see growth into uh, into 23. 
from our current position in life sciences. We also see growth into 24. It's hard to see too far past that, but our view is with the right clients, and even if there is growth uh, and stabilization in 25, that it's still the right trajectory because um, we're not taking on sort of new clients or unknown territory. We're servicing an existing key clientele that would sustain our business into the future as long as we are doing a good job and delivering a quality product. Um, so I see gr- we see growth for the next two years and we see a little bit of stable. It's going to stabilize a little bit after that, but it's all positive, I think, um, in terms of where uh, our sector is going. And for the right individual coming in at this right time, okay, uh, whatever age they are, doesn't matter. Um, who wants to, you know, climb the ladder themselves? Is yeah. this a perfect time to be to be getting in with a company like SIS? Does the next, like you mentioned, does the next three to five years look positive where they can easily get themselves into a, a senior position? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I I always say to people like, you know, I think. Um, our overall uh, managing director of the life sciences and ICT division is is actually from a services background, for example. So it just shows you that, you know, you can come from a services background and you can head up one of the biggest companies in the business. Um, I think the life sciences and uh, technology sector of our business, 60 to 70% are, are MEP guys within the business because it's predominantly service orientated. Um, I think the fact that we're growing for the next number of years and we have a very strong foundation, it's it's we should be an attractive prospect for anyone that wants to come in, whether they want to come in as a graduate and cut their teeth and learn, whether they want to come in as an intermediate and climb to a senior level or whether they want to come in as a senior level and push for a business focused executive level. I, I think it's 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 actually an ideal time to come into CISC. There's probably, it's probably the best time that, that we've seen in the industry in, in years for people to get those opportunities to progress. And, and how would how would somebody with a, you know, with a strong MEP background looking to get into the life science and technology sector within CISC, how would they apply to, to CISC? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a number of ways. I mean, we, 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 we advertise directly on our website, number one, uh, number two, I would always say um, our finders, uh, such as yourselves, will always get to me, in fairness, with good people. Um, also, I'm comfortable for somebody to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm comfortable for, uh, there's a number of channels now. Years ago, you know, we've gone away from that paper application to the HR manager and the company a little bit, but that still exists, obviously. But LinkedIn, is is a big playground now for for um for people potentially looking for work it's a good platform but also i mean we do still rely clearly on the likes of yourselves Stuart, because you have that consistent focus on quality resources in the industry that you can direct towards us so so again no a number of channels um a number of ways but but yeah you can you can definitely get to us Perfect. Look, I think um, it's been amazing listening to to your career and some of the challenges and how you've kind of navigated the 
the storms really to, to where you are today. Um, I want to give the, the audience a little bit of a background on, on you now, really. Um, so we'll kind of finish off with 10 nice and easy questions. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, <laughs> so number one is what is your, what's your favorite film? Um, Gladiator. <laughs> Gladiator. Right. Okay. Why is that? I don't know. Um, there's a couple up there, isn't there? Shawshank Redemption is another one, but yeah, I think I've been around a while. Um, I'm probably not so young anymore, but when I watched Gladiator, uh, I really liked the whole idea of the slave becoming a king and the route he took to get there. It was, uh, I think it was a great, uh, really Scott, wasn't it? It was a great movie. Brilliant movie. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite sport? Rugby. Rugby. Favorite team in rugby? Um, at the moment, uh, and I'll be killed for this. Um, I have a son that <laughs> plays professional rugby for Ulster, so I'm. Uh, I was always a, a monster love. I loved monster for years and years and years. I obviously still do. My son played for monster for a while. Uh, in fact, I had two sons in the academy at one point. My daughter plays for monster, um, but my eldest son plays for Ulster, so I'm going to have to back him on this one. I think. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite music um so your favorite music genre and artist yeah that's very interesting i've such a wide taste in music um ah, god that is a difficult one what do you what do you um, run to what do you exercise to do you know what country and western stroke rock which is going to sound very strange um I've always loved rock music, but not sort of the heavy side of it, but the sort of ballad side of rock music I love. Um, and you know what? And and even when that gets diluted down a little bit to rockabilly sort of country western style music, I, I like that as well. So <laughs> I have I have a really, really wide range. Um, sometimes I like to listen to slow music, simple music, just to calm me down. Sometimes I like to listen to rock music to get me going. So it's a, it's a really it's a really strange mix. Um so if you said what's on your playlist, you know what? It could be anything from Bon Jovi to Shania Twain. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have a coffee with any historical figure, who would it be and why? Oh, it would be politically controversial, but I'd like to sit down with uh, Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera and have a chat with them around maybe... The, those times, the early 1914s, 15s, 16s, 17s, and get their view of life and how they felt the country was going and what they needed to do to get there. So, yeah, it'd probably be those guys. Brilliant. Um, what's your favorite color? Navy. Navy. Okay. Navy, yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> favorite, favorite, favorite meal? Has to be steak. Steak. What do you have with your steak? steak? How do you have your steak? First of all, medium, uh, medium uh, with uh, garlic sauce on the side, uh, mushy peas, and home cut chips. Oh, you're making me hungry now. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> what's the um? What's your worst sport? Um. To sort of, I, I, I've played almost everything, but I think looking back, um, my worst sport, 
Do you know what? I don't understand cricket, for example, but I wouldn't say it was my worst sport. Um, and I've never taken the opportunity to go and watch a game, but I wouldn't mind. Um, but uh, the new phenomenon is basketball, right? And I get it through the Michael Jordan documentaries and things like that, but I'm not so sure I love it either, to be honest with you. But it's a, it's a phenomenal. You, you appreciate sports, but if you have to be one... Yeah, that's, I, that's, that's the problem. I appreciate all sports and I love watching sports and it does occupy my weekends quite a bit. Um, not just going to watch the, the family playing matches and things like that. But yeah, it's got to be cricket, I guess, because I just don't understand it properly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think most of us can. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what's the TV show that you dislike the most? You just cannot oh, watch. I... And you know what? Again, now I'm probably uh, going against uh, popular opinion, but I don't like those reality TV shows at all. Um, they're just not for me. Um, they're too contrived, and I just don't like them. Um, I'm a bit of a streaming serious guy, uh, you know, the Netflix, really? etc. Yeah, I wouldn't mind watching a good series, but I can't. I can't do the reality TV thing. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. And um, what's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you that you can oh, discuss God. on air <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. not lose your job? Uh, yeah. Um... Make it business related if you want. The most, you know, the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you in your job where you just thought, oh, Jesus. Um, don't know you know that um i'm sure i've had quite a few embarrassing moments um oh one particularly very embarrassing moment was um i went for an interview so uh, i was in well, i worked in the uk from uh, 89 to 2001 sort of around that time uh, but i came back to ireland and i was interviewed uh, with a big company um and i went into the office i sat down in the interview and they asked me about myself and everything and it went really well and the hr manager was in the room uh there was the managing director in the room and there was a kind of a like a regional director in the room interviewing me and i thought it went very well but i mistakenly thought the regional director was the managing director and maybe i i focused a little bit too much on what he was saying to me as opposed to maybe the managing director and afterwards I think I said something like, uh, it'd be great to be working with you. You know, you run a great business. And he kind of looked at me and looked over at the other guy. <laughs> and, I mean, and you too. It's great to work with you too. <laughs> I, and I think I completely embarrassed myself that I just didn't know who was in the room, which I did learn from. Uh, you do need to know exactly who's in the room, don't you? Oh, 100%. And there's nothing worse yeah. than uh, interviews are already awkward as, as much as they oh. are. So. Jesus, fair play. Yeah. Um, last last one. If you could nominate anybody to come on the podcast next, right? You don't even need to know them, just somebody in the industry that you'd like to hear, you know, hear their story. Who would it be? I think I think without naming names, I'd I'd like to to see sort of somebody in a in a senior role. Uh, with a, a very demanding organization like one of the life sciences companies that we work for and be very interesting to hear you know life from their perspective i guess it's great getting it from my perspective at the other side of the table but i'd love to hear what a leader in the blue chip life sciences companies how they view what they want and what they need and how they took 
their route uh, to get to where they are in terms of managing sort of one of these companies, which I'm sure is challenging because they're multinational global companies. And I'd love to get a feel for well, what they expect and what they want from from their contractors and management contractors. Of course, we're a contract, we're a, um, a management contractor on these on these projects. So it'd be good to get their view, I think, Stuart, on what they would like. Gonna throw you a curveball so it leads on to getting the next person in. You've got to name somebody. You've got to you've got to you've got to just name somebody that you'd say that you'd like to see on the podcast so we could hear from them. <laughs> I'll give you a name. Um uh David Barron. He heads up the MEP side of the contractor BAM. Be very interested to hear what David have to say. Perfect. Look, really appreciate your time. Thanks for t- uh, spending the time with us, Jason. Take care. Not at all. Very welcome. Thanks, Stuart. Right. Thanks for listening to the Leaders in Construction podcast with me, Stuart Wallace. I hope this episode has inspired you in more ways than one. Until next time.